Oh, Father, we love you. Thank you that we can laugh in church. I've been to too many churches where laughing was forbidden. At least it felt that way. And I'm very grateful, God, that we can, we can come here and we can joke around and, and, well, we can be what we are, which is a family. And I'm so grateful for that, Lord. I pray as we look into your word tonight that you would guide us, that you would lead us to your heart as we sang in that song. Help us just to see more of you, to draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Exodus chapter 23, you don't have to turn there. Uh, you should be in Joshua chapter 9. But in Exodus chapter 23, verses 31 to 33, God commanded Moses, For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Uh, this is reiterated in Exodus 34:15, adding the reason that doing so would cause the children of Israel to sin with the, their foreign and false gods. Instead, God commanded them to drive all the people out of the land in order to punish the people for their vile sins, to destroy all the polluting influences of the land, and to make sure the children of Israel did not become polluted by these sins. Those who have trouble with God using Israel to punish those in the land of Canaan often have trouble with the fact that God is a just judge who will punish sin. Later in Israel's history, God used other nations to punish his own people for their sin. The fact is that God is just, and what he does is always just and right. In order to free us from the punishment that we deserve for our sin, which according to Romans 6.23 is death, God sent Jesus to take our place on the cross, to punish our sin in him, so we could have his righteousness by faith through grace and be saved. Some good scriptures for that, Ephesians 2.8.9, Romans 5.8, and 2 Corinthians 5.21. I can only imagine how the history of Israel would have looked different if they had obeyed God as they should. Now imagine, if you will, how our lives could be different if we obeyed God as we should and got rid of all the polluting influences in our life. So there you go, I drove the knife in. Now I'm gonna twist it a little bit as we move forward. Are you ready? Chapter nine, do it. We just watched those. And it came to pass, Star Wars. Sorry. It's just a good Roy reference. He's not here. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan and the hills and on the lowland and all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it. That they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. Heard about what? Well, heard about the destruction of Jericho, heard about the destruction of Ai. When they heard about that, all of these kings get together and go, we can't stand alone. Let's, uh, let's get together and we'll, we'll all go out and, and fight against Joshua and Israel. In verse three, there were some people in the land who were, well, I mean, they were liars, but they were a little smarter than that. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon 
heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai. They worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hittites, or the Hivites, sorry, ooh, I messed that up. Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Joshua said to them, who are you, and where do you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his name, of his fame, sorry, I'm getting old, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants now, therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from, the houses, from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn. And these our garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Deception. Pure, unbridled deception of the Gibeonites. Right? They had a different strategy from the kings. They decided to work together and fight Israel. Gibeon said, no, let's lie to them. Th that, that might work. Uh, so they mentioned that they came to them at Gilgal. Now, this is a different Gilgal than the Gilgal we mentioned earlier because they set up a Gilgal as they crossed over the Jordan by Jericho, but now they've passed up through the southern part of the land, and we're going to see that uh, a little later tonight. Um, and there is a second Gilgal in Israel right by Shechem uh, where they were at the end of chapter 8 in the center of the land. Um, that isn't really all that important, but in case you want to know, there's more than one Gilgal. Uh, Shechem, of course, is where Jesus met the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Uh, in verse 7 and 8, I think God is poking Joshua a little bit. He, Because Joshua is a little suspicious. Uh, maybe you dwell among us. How can we make a covenant with you? Oh, but we're your servants. And Joshua says, who are you? Where do you come from? So perhaps the Lord was warning him, but he wasn't really listening. And I think God does this for us. He gives us warnings. He does it by scripture, by his spirit, through other people, through the situation, that, you know, something just feels off. Uh, if we got up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we would call that the gift of discernment, or that God is giving us a discerning spirit in that moment. Because sometimes things do feel a little off, and we're not quite sure why. Because everything in front of us looks right. But something just feels off. And I think that's what God was doing with um, Joshua here. He's like, hey, ask, ask the right questions. If you don't like the answer, you know, um, we're, we're going to get into more of this in a little bit. But notice in verse 9 and 10 that the Gibeonites do not mention Jericho or Ai among the victories of Israel. That's a lie of omission. They knew they had conquered Jericho. They knew they had, verse yeah, 3 told us that. Um, they knew that, but they didn't want to talk. Oh, we just heard about what you did to Og and, 
and, and King Sihon and, and what you did on the other side of the Jordan. That's what we heard about because we were so far away. We have no idea what's going on here. Um, from a distant land. Yeah, what's the name of it? How about that question? What's the name of your distant land? How about, how about you throw that? Uh, 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 San Francisco. Oh, right, no covenant. Sorry, anybody watching from San Francisco, but um, your city's becoming a bit of a cesspool. Verse 14. <laughs> In verse 14. It's not the only one, right? Let's not just pick on San Francisco. There's a lot of cities in our country that are becoming a cesspool. <laughs> then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but notice they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Big time failure. What's their failure? They did not seek the Lord. And they made a covenant. They were commanded, don't make a covenant with anybody in the land. They didn't seek the Lord to see if these people were lying to them. They didn't ask, I mean, where are you from? Our land. If I needed to know where somebody was from, oh, a distant land. No, I need a name, buddy. I need a name. I need an address. <laughs> you know, I need, I need something more than a distant land if I'm trying to make sure, of course, that I don't disobey God. There's a wonderful old hymn. Oh, what needless pain we bear because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So not only was their failure to not seek God, which was the biggest of their failure, they looked at the evidence and they relied on their own wisdom. And, and that's easy to do, right? Because sometimes something looks good. Well, yeah, that looks good. Why not? That makes sense. Let's do that. Sometimes something looks bad, but God wants us to do it. And we don't, we don't understand. And we struggle with that. Right? But if all we're going to rely on is our own human wisdom, our own reasoning, which we're told in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 to not do, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him, which would encompass seeking him, and he will direct your path. Now, in all fairness, they didn't have the book of Proverbs yet. Solomon wasn't even born. But still, we do. We don't have that excuse. They looked at their own reasoning. And when all we do is look at our own reasoning and we don't seek the Lord, we will end up in the same kind of situation. And so what did they do? Well, they made an ungodly alliance. They made peace with them. They made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So then I have to ask, how often do we make an ungodly alliance or an ungodly decision because we didn't seek God before we did it. One of the things that's come up fairly repeatedly in my many years as a pastor is people coming to me. Uh, typically, this, this revolves around marriage. Not always. But coming to me because they married someone who is not a godly person. And they tell me, oh, well, you know, there was such a nice person and there's such a nice guy or it's usually got girls marrying guys. You don't usually see it the other way around, but it happens. Such a nice, you know, he, he treated me so good and now we're married and he won't go to church and he won't read the Bible 
And, and, and he doesn't pray. He doesn't want anything to do with it. And I don't know what to do. And then my favorite, why would God do this to me? God didn't do that to you. You did it to yourself. Because you disobeyed the Bible. 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? Now that verse is in the context of marital relationships, but I think it applies to all of our relationships. And God's word is true. His judgment's faithful. And we need to always make our decisions and our alliances, whether it's in marriage or in business or, or something else, with the knowledge and wisdom of God's word and through prayer at the forefront. Our relationships with other people are extremely important. The right godly relationships can encourage and support us and help us move forward in our walk with Christ. The wrong relationships can pollute us, hold us back, and to keep us from growing into all that God has for us in Christ. Share this at our elders' dinner the other night. Chris Hodges wrote in his book, Out of the Cave, Show Me Your Friends, and I'll show you your future. Proverbs 13, 20, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. And these quality relationships, they don't just happen. They take time. They take intentionality. And we can be intentional about connecting with people who add to our lives and to whose lives we can add. I lost my place. Here we see God telling us the same thing. He warned Israel. In the New Testament, he warns us. This does not mean that we don't build relationships with non-believers in order to share the gospel with them. That's not what this means. Because there are churches, oh, well, if you're a Christian, you should never talk to non-believers, you should never hang out. Paul said it. If, well, A, if you didn't associate with anybody who was a sinner, well, you'd have to leave the world, right? You couldn't even go to church. Um, and B, how are you going to share the gospel with somebody who's not a believer if you, if you don't talk to them? <laughs> At the very least, right? So this is not talking about building relationships with non-believers for the purpose of sharing the gospel and pouring love and grace into their lives. What it does mean is that in our relationships, our alliances with other people, whether that's business, marriage, friendship, whatever, it needs to intentionally be godly relationships where we can mutually build one another up in the Lord. Uh, some great verses, if you're taking notes, Romans 14, 19, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, and Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Ungodly relationships will have the opposite effect. 1 Corinthians 15.33 reminds us that we should not be deceived because evil company corrupts good habits. One other thing I want to note before we move forward is that Joshua, well, this is his second mistake, isn't it? Right? Joshua's a good dude. He's got a great testimony. Be strong and courageous. The Bible talks about his faithfulness. The Bible talks about his obedience. The Bible talks about his faith. Yet at Ai, he made a mistake. Didn't seek the Lord. Here, he makes another mistake. Now, granted, he made a mistake with other people, so it wasn't all his fault because the elders of Israel were part of this covenant. But he made a mistake. That's comforting to me. Because Joshua was not perfect, but God still used him in a powerful way. We're going to talk about this as, uh, on Sunday. Um, 
that God used a donkey. If God can use a donkey, he can certainly use me. We are of similar ilk. And what I mean by that is we're both cute and stubborn and uh, a few other things. <laughs> but God uses imperfect people because, uh, well, frankly, there's no other people to use. <laughs> and uh, we should be grateful for that because God can and will use us even though we are imperfect as well. Verse 16, it all falls, it falls apart quickly. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made the covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. And their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, Beeroth, Beeroth. I'm just going with it, and Kirjith Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers have promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying we are, from, we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, I can turn the page, hold on. We were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in that place which he would choose even to this day. So the Israelites discover their deception. They travel to their cities. The people want to kill them. They complain against their leaders for this failure. However, because of the oath made to them, Joshua would not let the Gibeonites be killed. He made them slaves, water, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of the Lord. Now, I do find this interesting that even though where they were deceived, they honored the covenant that they made. Now, they made a mistake. It was a bad mistake that's going to come back and get them later on. But they were still people of integrity, right? Their word meant something. They said, we gave them our word. Yeah, they lied to us, but we gave them our word and we're going to keep our word even though they lied. Um, that's not how it works in our country, right? If somebody here um, makes some sort of a contract with you, but they do it under false pretenses of some sort, um, that contract is not binding. Uh, but they were honorable men. Uh, and, and I think, well, we shouldn't. Jesus told us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Our word should mean something. Their word meant something. So even though they made a mistake, I appreciate that. And Joshua says, why did you deceive us? And, and their answer to me is pretty fascinating because we knew that God commanded Moses to kill us all and we were afraid. How did they know what God commanded Moses? 
I mean, word of what Israel was doing, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, their delivery from Egypt, um, the, the defeat, defeating the kings on the other side of the Jordan, the parting of the Jordan. I, I mean, that stuff, it makes sense that they would have heard about that stuff. But how did they know that God commanded Moses to kill everyone? That, that I, I, don't, I don't know how they knew that. But they were afraid, as they should be. Uh, in time to come, the Gibeonites do become a snare to Israel. Even though they let them live, they still could have destroyed the false gods among them, but they didn't. They allowed the Gibeonites to continue worshiping their false gods, and that eventually does become a snare to the people of Israel. Uh, so even though they made a mistake, they still could have done something. Said, fine, we're going to let you live, but all your false gods are gone, you're going to worship. If you're afraid of our God, then fine, you're going to worship our God. But they didn't do that. Just keep that in mind when you conquer foreign lands to get rid of false worship. It'll work out better for you. Uh, anybody in here planning on conquering foreign lands? Uh, let me know. <laughs> chapter 10. Chapter 10. Oh, I like chapter 10. Chapter 10 is good stuff. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up with me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, and Jarmuth, and Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon, and made war against it. So this is kind of interesting. So the kings had decided, we're going to attack Israel. Well then, when they heard that Gibeon had made peace with Israel, they said, fine, let's attack them first. <laughs> you know? And so this conglomeration of kings goes against Gibeon to destroy them for making peace with Israel. Uh, it points out to us that Gibeon was like a royal city. It was a mighty city, which would have meant they had uh, probably a decent military presence. And the other kings were probably depending on them to slow Israel down. And when they made peace with Israel, now Gibeon's not going to slow Israel down. So they decide they're going to go attack them. Now, I do want to talk about this guy who's mentioned several times, Adonai Zedek. The word Adonai should be familiar to most of us because it's a Hebrew word meaning Lord. Zedek is a cool word. Cool word. It means righteousness. So this guy, Adonai Zedek, his name meant Lord of Righteousness. Now, he probably wasn't really a righteous guy, but he was king of Jerusalem. He was, we do have the first king of Jerusalem mentioned in the Bible, way back in Genesis 14, which we were in, probably well over a year ago at this point, a guy by the name of Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Uh, to be king of Jerusalem also meant that you were the king of peace. Abraham met Melchizedek, tithed to Melchizedek. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine to celebrate Abraham's victory. 
So Melchizedek, of course, is Jesus. Uh, the name Melchizedek is only mentioned two other times in Scripture, uh, besides Genesis 14. Uh, the other, uh, one of the other ones is Psalm 110, verse 4. And then after that, he's mentioned in Hebrews 5 and 6, where the writer of the Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, but we're going to get into that when we get to the book of Hebrews, um, makes the case that Melchizedek is in fact Jesus. And that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek because he's a priest but not a Levite. Um, however, the other kings of Jerusalem apparently took part of that name for themselves. Uh, so after Melchizedek, we don't know what happened to him. Uh, as Hebrews will tell us, he had no mother, no father, no genealogy, no beginning, no end. We're not told when and where he was born or when and if he died. Uh, none of those things, which all adds to the fact that Melchizedek was likely Jesus. Um, but apparently Adonizedek, as a down-the-road king, not necessarily a descendant, but a, a, a down-the-road king from Melchizedek, took the name for himself as well. Verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And I love this. Even though they made a mistake, and now they're going to defend, literally defend their mistake, God says, I'm still going to go with you. I'm not telling you you should defend your mistake and hope that God is on your side when you do it. I'm just saying, God's faithfulness is not based upon our faithfulness, for which I'm very grateful. Verse 9, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled. Oh, I'm going to stop there. Sorry. So the Gibeonites very simply ask for help, and Joshua goes with the Lord's blessing to not be afraid because God will destroy the kings who came against their allies. In this battle, though, and we're going to see this here in just a moment, God gets involved, which is pretty cool. Verse 12. Oh, no, wait. I skipped a verse, didn't I? I skipped verse 11. That's why my notes and my brain aren't matching. Verse 11 is that it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Haran that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. Uh, if you get a large hailstone cast upon you, death is typically the result. Uh, there were more who died from the hailstone than the children of Israel killed with the sword. And so God gets very involved, casting large hailstones. I, now, I don't know what qualifies as a large hailstone. When we get up into other parts of Scripture, um, there were there were hailstones like in the book of Revelation that weigh a talent. Well, the talent was somewhere between 90 and 120 pounds. I imagine a hailstone that weighed two or three pounds, if it bonked you on the head, that'd be enough to crush your skull and, and, and you'd be done. Now, imagine a hailstone that weighed 120 pounds, right? Ter what terminal velocities, I, I can't remember what terminal velocity is, 120 miles an hour, isn't it? Right, but yeah, I'm sure. 
But I, uh, terminal velocity is somewhere, I think, around 120 miles. That's the fastest something can go between wind resistance and gravity pulling it down. So now imagine something 120 pounds, solid rock, maybe on fire. Right, okay, it doesn't say they're on fire here. In Revelation, they're on fire. Something traveling 120 miles an hour at 120 pounds that's on fire hitting you. You're not going to do well. It, it, it's, it, yeah, it would be swift. I mean, at the very least, it would be swift. You know, but it would be... Um, that's why it says that the Lord killed more of them with the hailstones than Israel did with the sword. Chapter two, or verse 12, sorry. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? I'm going to have to believe Joshua here because I don't have a copy of the book of Jasher. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So Joshua prays, right? They're basically, they're running out of sunlight and they want to finish this battle. So he, he says, Lord, sun stand still. And God honors this request because he was fighting for Israel. He'd never done this before, and he has not done it since. It was a unique day in the history of the world. This, of course, is a problem for skeptics. It's even a problem for some Christians and theologians because, well, people sometimes have a problem with miracles. But it boils down to our concept of God, and we talked about this a little last week. Uh, we've talked about it several times. Uh, when we believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then we should have no problem that God did this. Now, because of what we know, uh, scientifically speaking, uh, God actually had to stop the world from spinning on its axis in order for the sun to stand still in the sky and the moon to stand still. Because uh, the, the sun and moon uh, were, were what moves. <laughs> right? And the, the moon moves, and the sun actually does move as well, but from our perspective, um, we're, we're what's moving. So then you have to ask a really interesting question. What keeps the world spinning on its axis to begin with? Right? It's like God spun a top. Some gravitational and it, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I'm sure gravity has something to do with it. But, but we, we are spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. We are hurtling through space at some like 53,000 miles an hour. Um, we don't notice that other than the sun and the moon moving through the sky, right? We don't notice that because our gravity is so perfect and the size of our planet is so perfect that we can sit here on something that's spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, hurtling through space at 50-some thousand miles an hour, and we don't really notice. But that meant God had to stop the earth from spinning. Now, in order to do that, he had to do it in such a way that all the things on earth didn't fly off into space because it's our spinning that causes gravity, <laughs> or at least as part of it. Right? I mean, there's a lot that went into God doing this, and it's really cool. Now, I believe the biblical account. I don't need anything else to tell me. The Bible tells me that the sun stood still in the sky. I'm okay with that. 
I don't need anything else. But then we do, it's fun to ask the question, is there historical evidence for this death? Thankfully, right, just in case you do get in a conversation with a skeptic or a Christian who doesn't believe the Bible, which I, I struggle with that idea. If you're a Christian, you should believe the Bible. But there is evidence. There were a group of scientists in Cambridge who actually have identified the day uh, as a unique day in history. Now, uh, because they aren't a bunch of Christians, they, they want to say it was a solar eclipse. But a solar eclipse wouldn't cause the sun to stand still in the sky. It would block out the light from the sun, which is different. Um, however, the, they have identified this day. I should have wrote the date down, but I didn't. Additionally, there is evidence for this long day found in other cultures, which is really cool. When we were talking about the flood, we talked about how every, basically every culture in the world has a flood story. Why would they have a flood story if the flood didn't happen? In the ancient Chinese writings, there's a legend of a day that was too long. The Incas of Peru, the Aztecs of Mexico, have a similar record. There is a Babylonian and Persian legend of a day that was miraculously extended. Herodotus, an ancient historian, recounts that while in Egypt, priests showed him their temple records and that he read of a day which was twice the natural length of any day that had ever been recorded. Do we need such evidence to believe the biblical account? No. Is it kind of cool that that evidence exists? Oh, yeah. And so I love the power of God here. Paul prayed for us, well, for the Ephesians, but I'm going to include us because we're part of the church. In chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, we don't necessarily need the sun stand still power that Joshua asked for in our own lives to deal with our problems or the challenges we face. But isn't it nice to know that our God has that kind of power? Since he can stop the, the earth from rotating to make the sun and moon stand still, shouldn't we trust that he can handle anything and everything that happens in our lives as well? Clearly, he is able. Verse 16. But the five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makeda. You got to like these guys, right? We're going to go to war. We're going to kill. The oh, all our people are dead. Let's run. No, be a man. Stand there and take it. Anyways, it was told Joshua saying the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. That was wise. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought out the five kings to him from the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, or the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings 
And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. And this was a cultural thing. Uh, you did this to a culture, uh, a conquered people to show your mastery over them. And Joshua said to them, verse 25, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening, when it was time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had hidden, laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this day. So Israel finished destroying their enemies. They imprisoned the kings. Once the battle was finished, and some had fled to fortified cities, which they're going to get to, um, but once these folks were killed, came back to the cave, killed the kings, and Joshua encourages the people, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Now remember back to Joshua chapter 1 and Joshua chapter 2. God said to Joshua over and over again, Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. I'm going to deliver these people into your hand. And now what is Joshua doing? Don't be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for the Lord your God will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. We're told, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't have this in my notes, but it popped into my head, so you got to listen. I mean, I guess you could read it, but too bad. Um, that the comfort, or maybe it's chapter 1. All right. We're doing pretty good on time. i got to find it. Give me a second. It's either 1 Corinthians 1 or 1 Corinthians 3. It might be 1 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Let's find out. I'm almost there. I'm in Romans. Still in Romans. There we go. 1 Corinthians 1. <coughs> nope, it's not 1 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Maybe it's 2 Corinthians. <laughs> That's how prepared I am. Yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. I was so close. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So when Joshua was scared, when he was concerned, when he didn't know how things were going to go, God came to him and said, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. I'm going to take care of this. And now Joshua is taking the same comfort that God gave him, and he's passing it along to the rest of the people of Israel. Don't be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. And I think that's such a special thing that God does in our lives. When we go through something difficult, God comes to us, and it's through the word or through other people, and, and, and he gives us encouragement so that then God can use us to encourage others when they're going through a similar difficulty. I think that's important. Now in verse 28 through 43, we are not going to read this, right? Uh, baby, can you bring up the map? The map! It's the map, it's the map. No, wait, no, wait. I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map. I'm the map. 
Um, because what you see on this map are lands, the southern area of Israel, conquered by Israel with the Lord God fighting for them. Uh, if we were to read it, we would see that after they conquered Makeda, then they conquered Libna, Lachish, Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. They conquered them at one time, all the south of what would become the nation of Israel. Eventually, this would become the territory of Judah. Uh, these were the cities of the kings that came out against Gibeon, and since God destroyed all their men of war, these cities were pretty easy pickings uh, with God's power at work, right? Their armies were gone. So when the armies of Israel came up, who was left? Uh, the old or the young, women, children, uh, all who were to be conquered. Uh, notice that Joshua did not conquer Jerusalem, right? Adonai Zedek came out. He was the king of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is not listed among this. This is where the Jebusites dwelt. Uh, Jerusalem was a well-fortified city, apparently quite difficult to conquer, even later on in Israel's history. I mean, granted, they built it up a bit, but Babylon and, and other uh, nations had a difficult time conquering Jerusalem. They were long sieges that led to the actual conquering of the city. Um, it would appear that Joshua doesn't even try it. I don't know why. It was part of the land. God had given it to them, but Joshua doesn't try to conquer Jerusalem. Uh, eventually, David conquered Jerusalem, making it the capital of Israel. Uh, you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So next week, we're going to have a special Wednesday night service, as it will be Easter week. Uh, next time we are in Joshua in a couple weeks, we are going to look at chapters 11 through 21. Now, our record to this point is seven chapters in one night. But we're going to look at a little, uh, ten chapters in one night. Why? Because it's the conquest of the rest of the land, as recorded for us by Joshua, as well as the division of the land, the appointing of the cities of refuge, and the cities given to the Levites, since they had no inheritance in the land. Uh, we're simply not going to read all of that uh, verse by verse, because it's a lot of, they went here and conquered them, and they went there and conquered them, and they went there and conquered them. And then after they were all done conquering, they cast lots. And this tribe got this, this parcel of land, and that tribe got that parcel of land. And realistically, I'm going to get a bunch more maps. It's going to make life so, so much easier. Maybe I'll sing the map song again. Maybe not. But next week, Wednesday, um, we're going to do a special service uh, as it's the middle of Easter week, and I thought that would be fun. I've already got the message done for it. I'm quite excited. We're going to be looking at Jesus washing the disciples' feet from John chapter 13. But until then, let's pray. I pray that God would be with each of us throughout the rest of this week, that he would strengthen us by, our, by his spirit, that he would establish us in his truth, that he would keep us in his love and grace for everything else we need to do this week. Father, we ask for your love and grace. We thank you for your great love and grace, for Jesus, our Savior, for your work in and through our lives. Please continue to work in us, Lord. Help us to draw closer to you, knowing that you will draw closer to us. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.